Hey, fellas. Hope you're doing well. I miss you, and I look forward to seeing you again soon, but I'm so thankful we're studying um, uh, God's Word again together today. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Now, today marks a big day in our study together. Genesis 37 begins the last section in Genesis. It will take us all the way through Genesis chapter 50. It's one long section, one long story, where the primary character is Joseph. Now, up until this point, as you know, um, Abraham has been the most important section in Genesis, certainly theologically, and that remains true even after today. Um, it was a very long, 14 chapters of material were dedicated to Abraham. But Joseph, <laughs> and the importance of his story, I assure you, is right up there. First off, it's just as long, 14 chapters dedicated to Joseph, just as 14 chapters were dedicated to Abraham. Joseph actually has more verses dedicated to him. Most scholars call this last section a masterpiece of historical narrative. It's a narrative that's this grand sweeping motion from the pastures of Palestine to the high courts of the Nile and back and forth again. It's a story that is filled with all of the the greatest ingredients of drama. You have betrayal, uh, you have sabotage, you have sin, you have just this um, sense of doom, but you also have redemption, restoration, and even joy. And Joseph towers over all of it. A boy of 17 years of age that begins as a prince, uh, becomes a slave, and ends up as a savior of God's people. It's an incredible narrative where all at once it moves us along in the story of God's people, his grand redemptive plan of saving the world through a particular people, it moves us along in that story. It points us to the greater Joseph, each and every chapter does. And it also shows us to, it reveals to us the sometimes hidden, but the always sure and faithful way that God loves for and cares for his people. There's so much to glean from this chapter. Um, if you want further study, I encourage you to look at your commentary in Kidner or Keller or James Montgomery Boyce. And there's many others, many of whom... Um, contributed greatly to, to my study for this, for this chapter. But let's go ahead and read this together. We'll pray, and then we'll mine the gold as we look at Genesis chapter 37. Starting in verse 1, hear the word of God. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, and these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them, his brothers, to their father. Now Israel, who is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. 
His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father, Israel, rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with their flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Is it still recording? It's still recording. <laughs> and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, Who are you seeking? Joseph said, I am seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where they are pasturing their flock. And the man, they said, they have gone away, for I've heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams then. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And he said this, that he might come and rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. The fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all of his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Brothers, let us pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we are grateful for yet again another time where we can study uh, your word together uh, with our small groups or in the comforts of our own home. We pray that this wouldn't simply be a lesson in which we would um, gain knowledge, but that we would truly reflect upon it and by the power of your spirit would be transformed and that more and more we would be um, like your son. Uh, speak to us, O Lord, for your servants listen. This in Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. In light of the suffering and uncertainty and tragedy that seems to be evident every day in our world, not to mention all of the um, hardships and griefs and sufferings that people face on an individual level each and every day, it is not all that uncommon to hear the outside world say things such as this, if, if God is in control, he must be incompetent. There's even a t-shirt that you can look up and buy if you want it. I encourage you not to, but there's a t-shirt that said this, God works in mysterious, ineffective, and breathtakingly cruel ways. That's generally the, the thoughts and the feelings out there in the world about God these days. Now, I suspect too, even us as Christians, we might not go that far, but given the world in which we live and the griefs and the hardships and the sufferings that we face, I know every now and again we're tempted to believe um, that God is not good. Or if he is good, he does not care to be good to us. Look at all this pain and all these disappointments and sorrow in my life. How could God possibly be looking out for me? I know there's been times and seasons where we've had thoughts or at least doubts that were similar to that. Here's the thing. Genesis chapter 37. I don't think there's any other place in the Old Testament, maybe even the Bible, that can answer those doubts and those questions as effectively as Genesis chapter 37. Now listen, this chapter is not filled with platitudes. It's a story. It's a narrative that we are to immerse ourselves in and behold the work of the Lord. It's a true story that you and I can resonate with. It's a true story that will challenge us, maybe convict us, but ultimately it's a true story that will encourage us. And I submit that, that if we're honest with the text and we let it do its work, it will change our perspective, particularly in those times where bad things happen to us. Uh, there's three things I want us to see. There's a lot of stuff we're not going to be able to touch given time constraints, but there's three things I want us to see. Uh, first, we're going to look at the, the depth of sin. This is going to be primarily in verses 1 through 11. Secondly, we're going to look at the sovereign purposes of God. Then thirdly, we're going to look at the pattern of grace, all of which, if we resonate and, and just meditate on, will change our perspective, particularly when bad things happen. So first and foremost, the depths of sin, verses 1 through 11. So my family, some of my family recently uh, drove through the Rockies, and they took pictures of their journey, and they sent those pictures back to the rest of us who were not fortunate enough to make that trip. And most of their pictures were these beautiful, amazing mountains. Now, you've seen pictures of mountains before. I don't have to describe them to you, but I'm going to. They were gorgeous, they were uh, just humongous. They, were, they seemed unmovable. They were beautiful in their power and their glory. They just seemed so stable. You've seen pictures like that. 
Here's the thing. Volcanoes are also mountains, right? And if you saw a picture of, say, for example, Mount St. Helen before 1980, you would say the same thing about that mountain. Look at that mountain. It's beautiful. It's snow-capped. It's, it's unmovable. It's mighty. It's sturdy. But if you saw a picture of it after 1980, it's in a completely different story. As powerful and strong and as immovable as it seemed, there was something in the heart of that mountain that was brewing. Something that was brewing that was going to cause it to explode. The same is true of Jacob's family. On the outside, they looked awesome. They looked unmovable. They looked perfect. They looked glorious. But there was sin brewing and bubbling up in the heart of that family. And pretty soon, it was going to blow like Krakatoa. Now, what are the things, what were the sins that were brewing underneath the service in the heart of this family? Well, first off, we see the folly of favoritism. In verse 3, we read that Israel, Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons, right? Favoritism in its finest. Now, we know favoritism is a sin. We see this from Deuteronomy chapter 10, Romans 2, James 2, elsewhere. It's a sin that the people of God are to avoid. So what is Jacob doing here? First off, we got to understand that Jacob didn't just pick this up one day. This is a family sin that's plagued this family for generations. Just think about when Jacob grew up. Jacob grew up lacking the love, the care, and the affirmation from his dad, Isaac, who showed favoritism to his other son, Esau. So in many ways, Jacob showing favoritism here is a learned behavior. It's a learned sin. Okay? So it's deeply rooted in the family. Now, go a little bit further into Jacob's life when Jacob is a, a young man. All of the things that he lacked from his dad, he started searching for in other people, primarily Rachel. When Jacob saw Rachel, when he set his eyes upon her, he, he fixed his heart on her. And he had an idolatrous love. And we know that his love for Rachel was idolatrous in the way that it made him treat other people. For example, his other wife, Leah, he hated. He had a, an idolatrous love. And he must have thought to himself, man, look at this woman who is beautiful, Rachel. If she loves me the way that I feel about her, if she would just marry me, I know all of the brokenness in my life would be better. I know I would be healed. They did get married. And they did have a son. Well after he had children with the wife that he hated, in his old age, he had a son named Joseph. Now, you come to chapter 37. Rachel has died. And it seems like his idolatrous love that he did have for Rachel has now passed to the son he had with Rachel. He loved Rachel more than Leah. He loved Joseph more than his other sons. We see the folly of favoritism here. Now, in the second half of verse 3, we see the manifestation of that favoritism when we are told that Jacob gave Joseph a gift of a richly ornamented robe, the coat of many colors. Now, the coat of many colors, that's an older translation. ESV actually has it, as I just, as I just read. And uh, it is a richly ornamented robe. It, it might have been colorful, but the, the rich part is the key word. But even still, the Hebrew word um, that's in that that's in that verse, is, is much more full in meaning. In fact, just the basic translation simply means long-sleeved past ankles. All right, so here's the image. We have 
Joseph in this very expensive, beautiful robe, right? But it's hanging past his hands and it's dragging on the ground. Uh, he's too small for it. It'd be like my son, who's three, wearing one of my sport coats. It just didn't fit him. Now, why was that such a source or a reason for the hatred that's going to come? Well, think about it like this. Scholars say that that robe most likely was a symbol of inheritance, a symbol of rule, a symbol of nobility. Okay, it was essentially, uh, it was supposed to be given to the primary inheritor of the family. Now, scholars say that this robe most likely was originally belonging to Reuben, who, of course, was the oldest son, right? But remember in chapter 36 that uh, he slept with one of his dad's wives. Yuck. <laughs> but to punish him, right, he disinherited his son Reuben. So he disinherited his son Reuben. He has this robe, this rich, expensive robe that means rule and power and authority and inheritance. But he passes over each and every son and gives it to the son whom he loved, Joseph. Joseph showered, or rather Jacob showered Joseph with love and gifts, unlike he did any of his other children. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And the brothers knew it. Every time he put on that coat, his brothers said to themselves, I hate that coat. And I hate him too. It was the folly of favoritism that Joseph or that Jacob had. And it was about to lead to fury. Now, there's another sin that's bubbling underneath the surface, and that's the poison of pride. And we actually see this in the life of Joseph. We see this in verse 2, verses 5 through 7, 9 through 10. Now, all things considered, Joseph was a young man. He was 17, and he was seeking to, to follow the Lord in a family that wasn't exactly easy to do that. I mean, seriously, we know about this family. I mean, they took life lessons, apparently, from the soap opera Dallas. <laughs> this family was bonkers. This guy is 17 years old, Joseph, and think about all the things that he's already witnessed as a young boy and as a, as a young adult. He's seen lies and deception. His family has been chased. They've been you know, fearing for their lives for the majority of his life. He's seen adultery. He's seen incest. He's seen murder and mayhem, all from the hands of his father and his brothers. It is a huge measure of grace that Joseph is as well off as he is, all right? He's, he's an impressionable 17-year-old kid, but it seems as if he is following the Lord. I mean, 14 chapters are dedicated to Joseph and hardly a negative thing is said about him except for in this chapter in verse 2, verse 5, and verse 10. Verse 2, Joseph delivered a bad report to his father Jacob about his brothers. A bad report. Okay, that does not mean that the brothers were doing something bad, although I'm sure they were, okay, um, because they were very terrible people, quite frankly. But the word that Moses uses here means that the report itself was bad. Does that make sense? So essentially what it means is, is that uh, this report, right, it was um, a misrepresentation or a part truth, so what that means is at best, Joseph is a tattletale. At worst, he's a flat-out liar. And the only motive he would have had of giving a bad report is to increase his favor in his father's eyes at the expense of his brothers. Joseph was only 17 years old, right? 
but pride was building in his life. Secondly, the dreams. <laughs> verse 5, verse 9 through 10. Uh, the first time that Joseph tells his brothers about the dreams, the meaning is clear, right? Um, the only thing that I've been thinking about is how Joseph would have told his, like, what was the setting? Because it was a dream. So, I mean, maybe Joseph told them at breakfast, hey, guys, hope you slept well. Hey, I had this phenomenal dream. Y'all were servants and I was ruling over you. <laughs> Probably means nothing. Never mind. Anyway, Reuben, give me some eggs. <laughs> you know, I mean, like it was so awkward. How, how, how in the world did he, you know, relay this dream that he had? And of course, they were furious. Now we could chalk that up just to him being naive, but then he tells them another dream. <laughs> and it's 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 you know more blatant than the than the first dream. So here we have a kid who at best is naive or at worst is just a cruel person. I mean, his father, Jacob, Jacob, who is just the worst of people, really, Jacob rebuked Joseph. Which meant that the way that Joseph was telling these dreams, he was telling them in an arrogant and in a prideful way that even embarrassed his dad. He's just a 17-year-old kid. Every 17-year-old is a punk every now and again. But the noxious weed of pride was growing. And left unchecked, he was on his way to be an evil man. Joseph. The poison of pride. Thirdly, we see the rot of envy with the brothers. The Hebrew language does not tell us anything unnecessarily. Okay? And when it tells us something more than once, in short order, <laughs> we better pay attention. We are told three times in this passage, in verse 3, verse 5, and verse 8, that the brothers hated Joseph. It wasn't sibling rivalry, all right? It wasn't the older brothers just, you know, they have a cool jacket on. They don't want to hang out with their younger brother. They're just mad at mom and dad for having to take him to Malco movie theaters. That, that's not what's going on here, okay? They literally hated him. We are told that they could not even look at their brother Joseph and say a kind word. They hated him their little brother. Now the question is, why such hostility? Well, of course, we have the favoritism. We have the pride of their snot-nosed little brother, so I'm sure that added to it, but we're actually told the main reason of their hatred in verse 11. They were jealous. They were, they were envious of their younger brother. These older brothers, they, they could have been in their 30s, but they were, they were envious of their younger brother. Have y'all ever noticed that, that the sin of envy is the least fun sin? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I don't mean to make light. All sin is evil and, and, and leads to death, right? But there's no payoff with envy. It's the worst when that little monster of envy rises up in your heart. Proverbs tells us that envy rots our bones, that's how destructive it is. Alistair Begg, I love what he says. He says, the, the, the passion of jealousy torments and destroys oneself while it seeks to ruin another. And what he means by that is, is that the, nothing ever happens to the object of our envy. However, the envious one is ruined. They had that, that monster of envy and it was bubbling up in their hearts. Now, before we move on, it also seems, too, that it's clear that their hatred for 
um, their brother wasn't just for their brother. It was also for the Lord. They hated God. Now you ask, where do I get that? This is where I get it. Um, the dreams, right? The dreams is what sent the brothers over the edge, <clears throat> right? So the, the, the dreams, that, that, final, that was like the last straw for the brothers in their hatred for Joseph. But why? There were just dreams after all. There were weird dreams, but you have weird dreams. I have weird dreams. If I were to tell you my dreams, you might think I'm weird, but you wouldn't hate me for it, right? Why would they hate their younger brother uh, because he had some silly dreams the night before. The reason they hated him is because it was clear to the brothers that God was involved with those dreams. It was clear to them that God was behind them. It was clear to them that, that Joseph was the object of God's special purpose. Now, Joseph could have had more tact and how he disclosed those dreams. But that's not why they hated him. They hated him because of what those dreams meant. And the only reason they hated the meaning of those dreams is because they knew that God was behind it. And ever since Adam and Eve, everyone in this world, as fallen human beings, has hated the idea of being ruled by anyone else except for themselves. So envy. It was brewing up. It led to hatred, and hatred led to unspeakable acts of cruelty, as we'll see. Now, before we move on, what are some of the things that we can take from this? I mean, this family is an absolute mess. How is this encouraging, right? This is what I would take from it. Oftentimes in my life, and I know there's been times in your life too, um, where we have simply sidelined ourselves from thinking that we could be used or loved by God. Uh, you know, we might be suffering through something, but you know what? I'm a sinner. I did something wrong. It's my fault. God is punishing me. And uh, that's the way that we think about ourselves and about God. Now, just as a caveat, first and foremost, brothers, we have to have a posture of humility. We must search our hearts, right? Uh, because these three sins, they, they were in the, the, the hearts of Joseph, the brothers, and Jacob. They were seeds, and, and they were starting to bloom. We all have secret sins in our hearts, but they never stay there. They always bloom. We must have the posture of King David in Psalm 139, who, who, who pleads with the Lord, Search my heart, O God, and know me. See if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. We must deal seriously with our sin, repent of it, give it to the Lord. But this section is very encouraging to me because it reminds me that the purpose of the Bible, the purpose of this text, is not to give us rules for right living. What I love about the Bible is that it's filled with weirdos. <laughs> All except for Jesus, who is perfect and the author and the perfecter of our faith. But everyone else is a bum. Everyone else is a weirdo. I mean, even Joseph here, who is the hero of these last 14 chapters, is revealed in this passage to be a sinner. There is no hero here. Why is that good news? It's good news because it reminds us that the Bible's primary purpose is not giving us the do's and the don'ts of how to good life. It includes things like that, but the Bible's primary purpose is to reveal the gospel to us. The Bible's primary purpose is to show us on every page our need of grace and at least point us to God's gracious provision of grace. 
And in chapter 37 and onward, what we see more clearly than anywhere else so far is that God in his incredible love for his people breaks into the lives of his hard-headed sinful people against their own will to rescue them from their sin and whatever prison they have created of their own doing, to rescue them from that. And it's all according to his grace. And brothers, the same is true for us too. Listen, God's going to use his family in powerful ways, but it has nothing to do with how holy they are. They don't deserve this. It's only due to God's grace and his love for his people. If you want to boil it down, a little takeaway point, guys, we are a mess, each and every one of us. But in Jesus Christ, we are deeply loved. Never forget that. Now, that leads us to the second point. The sovereign purposes of God. This is primarily seen in verses 12 through 36. Now, as we read moments ago, when we read through chapter 37, there's some terrible things that, that happened to Joseph, things that would cause most people to say, where is God in this? How could God possibly be good with things like this happening? The truth is, though hidden, God is powerfully, sovereignly at work in the life of his people, particularly in the life of Joseph. Joseph was the object of God's providence. Now, what is providence? What's the definition of that? The definition of providence. The providence of God is the act of his grace and kindness through his wisdom and power in which he protects and governs all the events of the lives of his creatures. Joseph is the object of God's providential love and care. We see this we see this in two ways. First, we see God sovereignly work in Joseph's dreams. Now, these dreams are far more significant than we usually give them credit for. Just think about the historical context. Back then, it was an extremely hierarchical society. And one of the, the chief just ironclad rules were that the younger would always serve the older. Okay? I mean, that, that, that was just common. So, for example, a, a son or a daughter, no matter how old they were, even if they were advanced in years, would always show deference to their father, grandparents, elders. They're always subservient to their elders. Younger brothers were always subservient to their older brothers, too. The older brother would be the chief inheritor. He was the, the ruler. He was, you know, he was essentially the, the king, the king to be. And that was just common. So these dreams that God gave Joseph were deeply subversive. And they offended the, the cultural sensibilities of, of everyone that heard them, including Jacob. Uh, essentially, what God was saying is like, I'm going to bring about th this incredible, mighty salvation. A salvation that's going to blow your minds that you don't deserve, but I'm going to do it. But I'm going to do it in such a way that it's going to that's going to turn this family and the rest of the world up on its head. You're not going to see what's coming. <laughs> That's essentially what the dreams say. I mean, just think about Genesis 36, where we get the, um, the story about Esau's descendants. His descendants were mighty warriors and mighty kings of powerful nations. But then we get to Genesis chapter 37 and talk about the descendants of Jacob, God's people, and the only one that it's talked about is a snot-nosed little 17-year-old brat named Joseph. <laughs> that's, why the, that's why the brothers were offended. That's why they were deeply grieved, because this, this just seemed impossible. It shocked 
and offended their sensibilities. But God was sovereignly preparing not only Joseph, but also these brothers about the salvation that he was going to bring. Secondly, we see God's providential care in Joseph's life, uh, primarily through the events that, that we see take place in the latter half of this chapter. Now, if the dreamed dreams seemed impossible, those dreams were actually starting to take place through seemingly random events. Some might even call them coincidences. For example, first, Jacob, against his better judgment, decides to send Joseph after his brothers who hated him. <laughs> uh, he says, Joseph, the brothers who hate you are off there in Shechem. They're about 50 miles away from the home. Could you please just go check on them? Joseph goes. On his journey there, his brothers decide to leave Shechem to go to Dothan. As Joseph arrives where his brothers were supposed to be and he was searching for them, he just happens to see a stranger. That stranger just happens to know where the brothers went. So Joseph goes to Dothan. On his way to Dothan, he arrives just about the time that the brothers were just ruminating on all their hatred and it was coming to a boil. He arrives just about the time that, that Reuben was there in order to prevent him from being murdered. However, a little bit later, Reuben was not there in order to prevent him from being sold. Uh, just the, the, all these coincidences coupled with, with this intense hatred from his brother led to intolerable suffering and acts of cruelty on the hands of his brother. But, but, but friends, God was present in all of that. God was, was sovereignly there. He, he, he seemed hidden probably to Joseph, but certainly to everyone else. But God was there, sovereign and in control over every minute detail, arranging the salvation of his people. I love what Tim Keller says. Keller says, if Joseph had not been killed, but also had not been sold, or if Joseph had been killed and thus not sold, unless everything happened the way that it happened and the order that it happened, everybody would die. Because remember, a giant famine is coming. And it's a mother of a famine. It is, it is going to wipe out everything. Joseph, somehow, some way, needed to get to Egypt. Joseph needed to ascend to a position of power where he could save his brothers and everyone else. If the things that happened didn't happen, everyone would die. Not just a random family. It was God's family from whom the promised Redeemer would come. But God was present. God was working everything out. What does this mean? It means that when God seems absent, we can trust that God is there, managing every single seemingly random or even cruel detail in our life, arranging the salvation of his People. Now, there's a couple of things we can take away from this. First off, God's redeeming love and the bad things that happen to us are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes we think to ourselves, okay, if bad things happen to me, I either deserve it or God isn't good. But brothers, God's redeeming love and the bad things that happen to us in this life, those two things are not mutually exclusive. Just look at the text in verses 23 through 34. We see some awful things that happened to Joseph. First off, they stripped him. They didn't just take off his coat. 
That word stripped is the same word used for skinning animals. So they stripped him naked violently. Secondly, they threw him into a pit. The word throw, that word would have been used back then um, when someone was getting rid of a corpse or if the body was still alive, leaving that person, uh, just uh, simply abandoning them, leaving them for dead. Listen how violent this is. They, they stripped him naked. They were rough with him. They, they beat him up and they, they, they left him for death. Thirdly, though we don't see it here, but according to chapter 42, while in that pit, Joseph cried out. His brothers, his brothers were eating lunch, but Joseph was in there and he was shouting and he was crying. Can you imagine being a 17-year-old kid so confused that your family is doing this to you? Why are you hurting me? Why are you leaving me here? Why are you laughing at me? And he starts crying out to the Lord, God, where are you? I'm sure he cried out to the Lord. He, he, he wailed into the darkness. Such cruelty, such violence, such violence in this passage. But if these things didn't happen, not only would these brothers be lost physically, all of them would have been lost spiritually. Just think about this. It was through this suffering that God would destroy that noxious weed of pride that was in Joseph's heart that was killing him. He was refining Joseph. The man that we see at the end of Genesis was this very humble, gracious man that actually forgave his brothers and wanted to bless them and serve them and save them. How did he get to that spot? It was through trials and tribulations, these sufferings that sometimes we can't explain. God was pruning him. I forget what commentator said it, but one commentator said that, that Joseph was more safe in the bottom of that pit, stripped and naked at the center of God's will, than he would have been at his home, safely at his home, outside of God's will. God was doing something in the heart of Joseph. He was also doing something in the heart of those brothers because it was because of these actions that those brothers would have extreme guilt in their hearts, and, and rightly so. But they had this guilt, and, and by the time at the end of this narrative, when they see their brother Joseph, just the mere sight of them rebukes them because they know they're undeserving of any mercy and grace that he dishes out on their account. They had a posture of humility. They do not get to that place without these trials and tribulations. Listen, brothers, God is so marvelous and so gracious and so good and so powerful that he'll even use the suffering of his people, even sometimes the evil intent of his people, which he does here, and he uses it to save all of them. God uses the suffering of Jacob. He uses the evil intent of those brothers, and he saves every single last one of them. So, so God's love, his redeeming love, is not mutually exclusive, exclusive from bad things that happen to us. The second takeaway we see is that God works together everything, even bad things, for the good of those that he's called according to his purpose, which, of course, comes from Romans 8, verse 28. God is so powerful, brother, so loving, so wise. He even uses the terrible things that happen in this life to do a marvelous work in our hearts. Things that we have done, the suffering that we've brought onto ourselves, the suffering that other people have 
imposed into our lives or, or simply the suffering and, and the griefs that we experience from just living in a fallen world. God will use those things to save us, to sanctify us, to pull us closer to himself and that we might experience greater joy than we ever thought imaginable. We might never know in this life while we experience some of the things that we do. We might never see God's sovereign hand, but brothers, just because God seems silent does not mean that God is absent. God is on the move. God is working. We can be sure that God is using all things for the good of his people and for his own glory. That's good news because it means that our suffering is never wasted. Brothers, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is in control of absolutely every detail in our lives? Do you believe that God can use even your deepest griefs, your suffering, even the suffering that you have imposed, that you have created? Do you believe that God can use that to bring about great blessing in your life? Do you believe that he's with you? Do you believe Romans 8, 28? That foundational verse that tells us that God works out all things for the good of the, those who love him. The world says, why would you possibly believe something like that? Genesis 37 gives us every reason why we can believe that, which leads us to our last point. We see the pattern of grace in Genesis chapter 37. Listen, suffering has a tendency to ruin us if we let it. It does. It, suffering has a tendency to make us feel like we've been abandoned by God, um, to make us feel or, or doubt whether if God is good or whether if he just chooses not to be good to us. Sometimes, especially when we have guilt in our hearts, we feel deserving of everything that comes our way, regardless if we're morally culpable for whatever the action was. Suffering has a tendency to do that unless we have an assurance of God's love. You see, if we have an assurance of God's love, when we are in the the process or the experience of suffering, if, if we have an assurance of God's love, it's, it's through that refining fire that God does a marvelous work in our hearts, that he pulls us closer to himself, that he makes us more like his son, that he sanctifies us, that we become more intimate with him. But it depends on having an assurance of God's love, that we're resting in his love. Now, we see the assurance, we're pointed to the assurance in this passage. First off, this whole thing, chapter 37, points us to the greater Joseph. Friends, do you understand that centuries later, there would be another Joseph who was loved by his father, who was sent by his father to search for the lost and ultimately be rejected by his brothers? They received him not. Do you understand that centuries later, there'd be another Joseph who would be sold for pieces of silver, betrayed by those who were closest to him? Do you understand that centuries later, there'd be another Joseph who would end up in a greater pit because of the envy of the crowds, those who despised the will of God and the purposes that God had for his son? Do you understand that centuries later, there would be another Joseph who would be stripped naked, abandoned to die, and who would cry out into the darkness, the greatest and most awful cry that's ever been cried. His name is Jesus, the greater Joseph. 
Now you ask yourself, how is that proof then that, that God loves us? Here's our proof. The proof is, is that in the greater story of the greater Joseph, Jesus, you and I are the brothers that betrayed him. You see, you and I are the ones that sold him off for silver. You and I are the ones that rejected and despised him. You and I are the ones that stripped him naked. And Jesus is the one who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cried that out willingly. He willingly went to the cross and he cried that out on purpose so that you and I, if we have faith in him, would never have to ask that question. He allowed himself to be stripped naked of his father's robes so that he could clothe you and me in his righteousness. That's the assurance. That's why Paul says in, in Romans 5.8, God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. So here's the catch. If you and I believe that, if, if, if we're resting in that, then that means that when we suffer, we won't doubt as much as we would have. We won't be afraid. We'll be drawn ever closer to the one who loves us more than we could ever possibly know. Because we trust if God and his wisdom and power and love and grace can work out the evil of the cross for the good of those who put Christ on the cross, then we can trust everything else in his hands. Every morning, every grief, every ounce of suffering, every question, we can entrust into that God's hands and trust that he's going to work it out for our good and for his glory. That's how you can know. Now, there's a couple of takeaways, and we're going to wrap this up. First and foremost, brothers, God is not indifferent to your suffering. God cares about you. Listen, Jacob was an imperfect father who loved his son imperfectly, right? But he grieved his son. He tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his loin. He grieved for his son, Joseph. God is the perfect father in heaven who loves us perfectly. And as those who are united to Christ in faith, he grieves our pains and our sorrows just as he grieved his beloved son. Friends, God cares about you more than you could possibly know. Psalm 56 verse 3 says that God keeps record of our tossings. It even says that he bottles our tears. He bottles them. And he keeps them in his book. On the day to come, you and I, will, 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 we are going to forget all the tears that we shed. We're not going to remember one last one of them. But God will always remember. He bottled them. God cares about you. Secondly, we see that you are not alone in your suffering. Friends, there's some folks in this world who mock us, who laugh that we're still grieving over things that we're grieving, or maybe they're so cruel they're, they're mocking the fact that we're suffering. There are those in our lives that, that, that used to walk with us in our suffering and in our grief, but they have long since forgot. Their lives have moved on. We haven't moved on anywhere. And they have just forgotten the things that 
that we mourn over. There's those of us who have folks in our lives who are still walking with us, but there's, there's just no way that they will ever know the level of grief in our hearts and our minds. There's just no way that we could describe it to them. So there's a sense of loneliness in that. Brothers, Jesus knows. He knows exactly what you're going through. He is our high priest in heaven who can sympathize with our every weakness because he has experienced the full blow of every type of brokenness in this life. And he experienced the full blow because he experienced those things and remained without sin, which means he went the full yard. He went the full mile. He experienced the full wrath of everything this world has to offer. And he did those things not so much to identify with us, but rather so that we could identify with him. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're experiencing. And he's got you by the hand. And he's praying for you in this exact moment. He is pouring out his prayers over you. You're never alone. Thirdly, one day you will suffer and grieve no more. Brothers, when Jesus rose from the dead, he sealed the fate of everything that buffets you. Our grief and our suffering and all of it has an expiration date. We're told in Revelation that on the day to come, all things that are currently sad will become untrue. Paul tells us in, in Romans 8 that on that day, it's going to be so glorious that all of our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Our God is so great, brothers, that, that he takes all of the evil and all of the wickedness and all of the sorrow and sadness in this life and he transforms it. He takes death and he turns it into resurrection. That's our God. And on the day to come, you're not going to remember any lick of the suffering you've experienced in this life because you're going to be in radiant glory before your Savior for, for forever. And you have the promise that he has you by the hand until that day. It is with that knowledge that enabled Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 to mock death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's how we can know. Brothers, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of grief, God might seem silent, but he is never absent. And we can trust that he's working. Now, I know sometimes we want answers <laughs> to some of the major questions that we have. But more than answers, isn't it true that what we really need is assurance? Right? Here's your assurance. Christ died for you. Rejoice, brothers, and be glad. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the gospel of Jesus. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would cause us to believe in it more deeply, to rest in it, so that uh, in the day of trial, when we suffer, or when our brothers suffer, we might come alongside them and point them to Christ. But more than that, we just might be present with them, comfort them as you comfort us. Father, we pray that you would... Um, Build us in faith, that you would enable us to share this faith with a lost and desperate world that desperately needs to hear the good news of the greater Joseph, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you, Father, and it's in your blessed name we pray.
Amen. Have a good week, brothers. See you soon.